Hello, and welcome again to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Thanks for joining me again. I think it's fair to say that politics in this country and the political timber runs the gambit from disillusioned and panicked and overwrought to hopeful, perhaps, and energized. Some people say our democracy is broken. It's one of the things that Hedrick Smith is contending with in his new documentary about democracy in America. He calls it Winning Back Our Democracy. Smith is a longtime documentarian. He's worked for PBS. He's also worked a good deal for the New York Times before he picked up the camera. Smith has created a documentary based on grassroots activists who are working around the country to try to, as he says, win back our democracy. He's bringing his film and his commentaries to Town Hall, April 8th, 7.30, to the Summit on Pike. You can find Hedrick Smith's documentary, Winning Back Our Democracy, on YouTube. Search for The People vs. the Politicians, Winning Back Our Democracy. Steve. Hi, Hedrick Smith. How are you? How are you? No, I'm Rick Smith. You and I have talked multiple times before. Yeah. Where does the name Hedrick come from? Uh, it comes from my mother. Family name. I like it. Old, well, if you got a last name of Smith, you got to do something, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I was listening back to some of the times we've talked. We did talk multiple times. Yeah. You're calling it winning back our democracy. You made the argument about local people, people uh, trying to seize grassroots efforts, people looking at dark money. We'll get into the specifics, but let me ask you, you did the documentary, you looked at the 2018 election, what did you see as an outcome? Well, I think 2018 was an amazing election uh, from the standpoint of political reforms trying to fix the system, not just in terms of Republicans and Democrats and who's going to control the House of Representatives. It was important that way, too. But it was really important in terms of what people movements, citizen movements, grassroots movements were able to achieve. It is astonishing, astonishing that in one election year, Five states would adopt gerrymander reform, that is, preventing politicians from rigging elections by manipulating the maps of election districts in five states, in Ohio, in Michigan, in Missouri, in Colorado, and Utah, which is not exactly your hit parade of reform states that you would pick where things would happen. And then Maine adopted rank uh, choice voting, which is a change in the voting system. Connecticut joined the compact of states that are trying to get around the Electoral College and have the presidential election uh, decided by the national popular vote. Florida restored uh, the voting rights of 1.4 million former felons who've served their time. Uh, a dozen other states modified their election registration laws, either for same-day registration or for motor voter registration or some other way to make voting easy. Um, several cities, Baltimore, Phoenix, Portland, Oregon, adopted public funding of campaigns. So there was a slew of reforms, all of which came from the bottom up. I mean, nobody was looking at Washington, D.C. Nobody was looking at the Beltway waiting for the national leadership to do anything because uh, Washington has been stuck in partisan gridlock and now for the better part of a decade, uh, and there was really no hope of getting reform there. So people are taking the issue of fixing our broken democracy into their own hands, and they're really uh, achieving quite a remarkable result. I mean, it, it is to me an echo of the famous progressive era 
at the beginning of the 20, uh, 20th century when you had uh, uh, women getting the right to vote. You had direct election of senators. You had Teddy Roosevelt uh, busting the, the trust, the corporations. You had Congress adopting the Tillman Act in 1907, which banned corporate contributions and spending and political campaigns. So, you know, there's an echo here of something that happened before in our history. Uh, and the, the pot is percolating uh, on the back burners and coming from outside of Washington towards the center. So as we're recording this today, uh, March 27th, in my paper, the Seattle Times, and I still do read the physical paper, um, two articles. One is headlined, GOP tries to limit which felons are eligible to vote in Florida. So after overwhelming majority of Floridians voted for the voting to restore voting rights to 1.4 million felons, People are celebrating, but Republicans, including Ron DeSantos, is pushing back. They want to define uh, a little more stringently who gets to vote and expand the, the notion of the people who can't vote if they committed uh, certain crimes, and they want to expand that. There's always pushback on this issue. Let's just stick with voting for a minute. There's always pushback on this issue from the powers that are, well, what would you say? Where does the entrenchment come from the pushback come from from those entrenched interests is it well entrenched power uh, i think it was frederick douglas who said power concedes nothing without a demand it never did and it never will and he might have added that power will always fight back if you try to take power away from it uh, what you have is um in many instances, Republicans, because they've got control of more state governments in the country today than Democrats do. But Democrats do it in other states, in Maryland, in Illinois, in Massachusetts, where they have control. They gerrymander elections and they keep themselves in power. Uh, but wherever you've got somebody who's in power, been used to being in power uh, and changing the rules of the game. This is not about whether or not you can win the election as a Republican or a Democratic candidate or as an independent. This is about whether or not you can change the rules of the game uh, to make it a fairer game to level the playing field. The folks have been benefiting by having their thumb on the scales, by making it hard for other people to vote, uh, making it easier for the kind of people they know will go out and vote and vote for them in preponderant numbers, are always going to fight back. I mean, you saw it this year. All across the country, in Missouri, in Michigan, in Utah, uh, where they adopted gerrymander reform uh, last year, the lame duck legislatures in all of those states tried to roll back the reform while they were still in power before they had to surrender power. And in Florida, you got people trying to water down uh, the reform on voting. In North Carolina, you've got, you've got the legislature there coming back and, and imposing a new photo ID law, which is going to be a challenge again. You know, uh, somebody who caught this the best of all the ordinary people that I met while I've been doing reporting on this was a woman named Linda Bach, and she's from Seattle. Mm -hmm. And I, she, she's a woman who gathered 21,000 signatures. One person gathered 21,000 signatures to put on the ballot the vote in 2016 to roll back Citizens United. Uh, and I talked to her and I said, what are you doing? What's got you so fired up? And she said, I feel like I'm a continuation of the American Revolution. Every signature I get is a vote for the Constitution and for we the people. And then she said this pregnant line, democracy, you got to fight for it 
or it'll slip right out of your hands. And she has the essence of it. There's no stopping. There's no resting. Uh, there's a continuous battle, not only for partisan control, which party is going to win it, who's going to be the president. There's a continuing battle over how you shape the rules of the game and how you reform things. Um, you know, here we are, we're, we're having women are now represented in the Congress to an unprecedented degree. My God, we're talking back a century ago that women got the right to vote. And today they're saying, well, it's not 50-50. We should have more. I mean, these issues go on. The issue of, of black voting rights, uh, you know, which was fought for in the 60s by Martin Luther King and John Lewis and all the rest and the march at Selma and the Bloody Sunday uh, at the Pettus Bridge. Um, and they thought it was one. The, the Congress passed the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And then along comes the Supreme Court decision, you know, in 2013, and it drills a big hole, loophole into that law. And a bunch of states rush in and try to enact new tough laws. And we're out on the streets again. We're back in the courts again. And the fight is going on once again over minority rights. It, it, we, we are a, we're a, we're a, a work in progress. American democracy is a work in progress. It's not settled. Um, and I think that is dawning on more and more people, that you can't just simply pass a law, adopt a constitution, uh, pass a referendum, uh, enact a reform, and go back to your rocking chair uh, or go back to your TV set or go back to your beach or your sailboat. Uh, no, you've got to stay engaged. And I think that's part of what's happened in the last uh, decade, but mostly in the last five or six years, that more and more people are, are upset and more and more people are engaged and more and more people understand that if they want a fair deal, if they want government to work for them, they can't leave it to the people who pay for government to work for them by putting so much billionaire money into campaigns. So it's a struggle. It's going on. You know, you've covered a lot of the, a lot of the issues you mentioned, except for the progressives you covered, right? Civil rights. <laughs> well, I, was not, I was not covering the progressives. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm going to ask what sounds naive, but I want to hear your answer. How come? How come there are, like you, you use the phrase, billionaires who pay for government. How come they are, uh, whoever they are, so um, uh, concerned about keeping some... I mean, I understand why they're concerned about keeping some people from voting. They want to stay in power for reasons that they want to be what? Enriched? Or is it philosophical? What is what is going on, do you think? Well, I, I, yeah, I, I, it's obviously a mix. It's obviously a mix. I mean, some people, I mean, if you talk to real diehard libertarians, they believe in limited government. They believe in, in a, almost the jungle. Leave it to us. Don't make any rules. Um, you have to wonder how a libertarian can dare to drive down the road, because if you can imagine traffic being managed the way they would like politics or economics to be managed, we'd have traffic accidents and people driving on both sides of the road and no one-way streets and no red lights and all that kind of stuff. So it really doesn't make a lot of sense. But some people are philosophically opposed uh, to, to any rules or they want minimum rules. But I, I think that it's hard to get away from the notion that, that wealthy people uh, want rules and want people in government that favor their ability to reduce their tax burden, to run their business the way they want, to take the profits of the business and return it to shareholders and give less of it to workers. And they want the kind of politics that makes that possible. And there are other people who are simply the power structure 
in their community or in their state where they are comfortable, where the general rules of the game are favorable to them. It may not be necessarily enormously profitable economically, but they can send their school, their kids to the schools they want. They can expect their kids to get into the colleges and universities they want. They can expect a health care system that takes care of them when they need it. They can expect a retirement system uh, that's set up for them. I mean, it's interesting with retirement, for example, uh, corporations back in the 1980s, began to eliminate the defined benefit retirement program, which is a program that says to a 30- or 40-year worker, we'll guarantee you when you retire after 30 or 40 years with our corporation uh, a certain share, a certain percentage of your wages. You'll get it every year. They want to get rid of that, and they said, we'll put it in so much, and then you've got to invest it wisely. That's a 401k, and you can work it out. The executives don't do that for themselves. They kept the defined benefit program. They want something that guarantees us as CEO and executive vice president and senior executives a guaranteed retirement. So they don't operate with the same rules. So people want rules in an environment politically and economically that favors them. They want to keep that. They don't want to give it up. Uh, they don't want to spend the money. I mean, you know, and, and we can go into the environment. I mean, smart people know we're in terrible trouble, not just as a planet, but as a human race. The danger to our lives and our lives of our children and our grandchildren is enormous. And the scientists are telling us, you know, week after week, month after month, we got to look out. Um, and it's just so much more convenient and so much more pleasant and so much easier uh, to say, well, don't put the reg on us now. We'll take care of that later on. And we want a system that does that. Once you start to open it up and ordinary people can have more say, then the outcomes uh, in terms of policy are different and folks don't like that. I guess I, I guess I come back to this question of, of how come. I mean, we could imagine the world 100 years from now and we could see the kind of uh, societies that we see depicted in the dystopian science fiction novels. So I always, I always have to ask myself, don't even folks like the Koch brothers worry that <laughs> they won't have enough money to build a, a big enough protection uh, for themselves and their families if the world is in chaos. And they must ask themselves that. They must look at it the same way. I just wonder what they think. I don't think that happens. I think people are really, unless there's an acute, I mean, Americans in particular, we're a crisis-driven people. We respond to crises. I mean, look at the great things we've done. We got attacked at Pearl Harbor and we picked ourselves off the floor and our Pacific fleet out from the bottom of the ocean. And we built a war machine that, that rolled over Japan and Germany. We were challenged in the Cold War. We didn't really expect that. We wanted to bring our troops home from Europe. And we got challenged that way and we responded to that. Um, you know, it's crises that get us. We, we, even the Sputnik, the whole thing, the space race, it was, a, it was an external challenge and it was clear and it was palpable, and it seemed to threaten our way of life. Uh, and I think that if you, the difficulty with a lot of the problems today is they're either a slow-motion crisis so that you don't feel a sense of urgency that you've got to do something now, or it's a crisis that's really hurting a bunch of other people more than it's hurting you. Uh, it's, hurt, it's hurting people uh, who, are, who are making less money, uh, who are living in different kinds of housing, uh, who maybe are ethnically and racially different, uh, who are newcomers to America, and we expect them to start at the bottom rung of the ladder. 
I mean, I, I really, I don't think it's so hard to understand. I will bet you dollars to donuts that the Koch brothers um, probably don't spend more than one hundredth of one percent of their time talking about the issues we're talking about, as opposed to talking about the government regulations that are affecting Coke Industries, their energy conglomerate, and what they can do um, in Iowa and Oklahoma and Texas and Washington State to defeat uh, and the referendum you know, last year on, on a carbon tax and that kind of stuff. No, I, I don't actually think you're right. I don't think uh, except, you know, maybe on Sunday evening meeting with a bunch of friends and somehow you get falling to talking to about your grandchildren and what kind of world we're going to have. Um, I don't think a lot of people uh, who, are, who are living fortunate and comfortable lives, that's very important, people who are not feeling much pain or fear in their lives, I don't think they spend a lot of time thinking and talking about the long term in serious ways other than you know, to gripe or to complain. I don't think that's the conversation at the 19th hole. Uh, I think it's far more immediate and far more short-term and far more personal. When I listened to President Trump uh, saying he was completely vindicated and exonerated, I also then the next step that the president makes is uh, we're going we're gonna to get rid of Obamacare. We're, Republicans are going to be known as, this, as the party of health care. And of course, in the in the 1984 doublespeak of the world we live in, that is, uh, yeah, they may be known as the party of healthcare in that they got rid of it for people. And yet, on the 19th hole, he must be hearing from many people who are saying, and he believes it himself, now is the time to act on that. So it, it, it seems like these are people who are working against their own interests. Well, I noticed that the uh, story in the Washington Post said, I think in the second half of the first sentence, or maybe it was in the second paragraph, that Trump was handing an issue to the Democrats by doing that. I don't think I don't think smart political advice uh, to Republican leadership would be you ought to attack Obamacare. I mean, I think the results of the 2018 election uh, were pretty clear that where Democrats were running in tippy districts, swing districts, suburban districts from coast to coast outside of many of the big cities, that Democrats were picking up seats that had been won in 2016 by Republicans by emphasizing health care, the ability of the Democratic Party to protect it, uh, particularly uh, Obamacare's provision uh, to guarantee you health care despite preconditions, uh, the inability of insurance companies to write you off or write you out of the risk pool and that kind of stuff. I don't think the smart money is where Trump is. I, I, I think this is um, I think this is a miscalculation on the president's part. I think it's it's reflective of the kind of um, cockiness he shows uh, when he's riding high uh, and. Uh, and he thinks he's got the Democrats down on the mat now after the Mueller reports come out, and particularly with Barr's interpretation of the of the Mueller report. Now, I don't I don't know whether or not he's hearing that at the 19th hole, but I bet that came right out of his own gut instinct. And that's a lot of what the president does. And a lot of the people around the president wince 
I mean, people on his own staff uh, wince when he makes decisions, kind of gut decisions like this. Uh, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. But I, I don't think you're going to find a flock of uh, of Republican senators uh, coming out and saying this is a great thing to do and this is what I'm going to run for re-election on, let alone members of Congress, uh, well, members if, of the House. If it's a real thing and not just a distraction. I mean, he did have Mulvaney uh, supporting him in the issue. I mean, one, one thing that the Republicans have gotten very good at, and, you know, the Democrats could learn, is that you run at your opponent's strength. And if that is what happened in 2018, then maybe they try to turn the narrative. But that's just interpretation. Let me ask you, let me ask you by way of stating that, let me ask you this. So I was re-looking, I was looking again at who stole, who stole the American Dream, your 2012 book. And one of the things you focus on is the memo that Lewis Powell wrote in, what, 71 or something? Yep. The yep, Powell just memo. before he got put on the Supreme Court by President Nixon. And and basically, that memo was about keeping the values that we just talked about in that class uh, strong and at the forefront and fighting back. And one of the ways they, that Powell outlined, and we've seen it happen, is to build institutions that can uh, check liberal institutions, liberal tendencies, and build conservative institutions. I hate using these labels because it's really not all that stuff, but you, we know what we mean. Um, and, you know, Heritage Foundation, American Legislative Exchange Council, Koch Brothers, Dark Money, all that stuff comes from this notion that we have to fight back against the cultural efforts that were taking place that brought us Teddy and, and, and brought us Franklin and Johnson. Well, those are the folks who are going to fight against, as you know, with Citizens United, right? Those are the folks that are fighting against the kind of things you're writing about, or you're talking about in in your documentary. They're not they're not rolling over, and they're very powerful. You know, I, I, everything you say is true, Steve, um, and they've been very powerful. They've been riding high, even even when the the presidency and sometimes the control of Congress has swung from party to party. If you look at the period from the 1980, early 1980s onward, it has been a period where pro-business uh, and conservative uh, forces have been more and more organized, uh, setting up institutions, whether think tanks or uh, w organizing political uh, campaigns and candidates than they were before. They were, in fact, reacting to the success uh, particularly of the labor movement, but also other liberal forces. But I think something interesting is happening. Uh, and I got this out of a visit to uh, Texas um, and uh, in December. I was down there and talking to people about Beto O'Rourke's race for the Senate, which he came within two percentage points of knocking off Ted Cruz, a Republican senator down there, which was one hell of a surprise to uh, most political observers there. And uh, I was talking to a couple of political scientists at the University of Houston and at Rice Institute, uh, men who had about a decade ago said that the demographics of Texas are changing, the growth and the activity of the Hispanic population and other minorities, but particularly Hispanic population in Texas, is eventually going to catch up with the Republicans in Texas. And at some point in the mid-20s, like 2024, 2026, they literally wrote this a decade ago, um, Texas is going to become a competitive state statewide for governor, for president and that kind of stuff. So I asked them, I said, you know, uh, is this just a fluke, uh, Beto O'Rourke coming this close? Or is this part of what you were predicting? And they said, it is part of what we're predicting. But part of what's happened is 
Trump has accelerated the process. Trump has so, in, in other words, the success of the very forces you were talking about, Steve, has created in a Newtonian way, an opposite reaction. It has speeded up the process. And, they, and I said, well, so what are the indicators? And they said, well, you know, the big cities in Texas, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and Austin have long been blue. They've been pro-democratic. He said, but the suburbs around them have been dominated by Republicans. In this election, 2018, every single major county election seat in Harris County, which surrounds Houston, was won by a Democrat over Republicans. Almost the same thing in Dallas County outside of Dallas, almost the same thing in Bear County outside of San Antonio, and almost the same thing uh, in, uh, in the county outside of, of Austin. So what they're saying was that not just at the state level and not just in the visible part uh, of the iceberg that you can see above the water, but underneath the water, things are changing. So uh, I, you know, this doesn't mean that Democrats can't blow it. And I'm, I have to tell you, I'm less interested in this in terms of Democrats and Republican. I'm a, I'm an independent. I'm a journalist um, in Washington D.C. I register as a Democrat because there is no meaningful Republican primary. But I'm an independent in spirit. I don't really care which party wins, uh, depending upon what their policies are. But I do care that the system is fair, that it's open, that people have a chance, that the, that everybody has a chance to vote, that you don't have gerrymandered elections. I mean, that's why I did this film uh, and this reporting that led to this film, winning back our democracy. And I hope a lot of people will go see it uh, on YouTube because I. I think it will encourage them to get involved when they see what kind of victories other people have been winning. But I don't think it's any surprise that the business roundtable, the, the National Association of Manufacturers and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce are well organized and are going to weigh in. I mean, anybody who doesn't expect that to happen has not been paying attention to American politics for the last 30 years. So, sure, that's going to happen. The question is, um, is there enough movement on the other side to begin to make American politics competitive all across the country. There's, the problem has been with both the media and the public that people have focused too much on who wins the presidency as if that shows you which way the pendulum's been swinging. Well, Obama won the presidency, but meanwhile, the Republicans won control of 30 state governments. And when I say control, I mean, you know, they had the triptych, they had the whole thing. They had both houses of the, of the legislature and the governor's chair. So it was misleading if you thought that Obama's victory told you that the Democrats were on top. They were on top in the House of Representatives for two years. They lost their supermajority in, in, uh, uh, in the Senate after two years. So that was temporary. Uh, I, but, but the question is, what's happening uh, in the undertow? What's happening beneath the water? And is the system getting fairer? so that the voice of the people is adequately and accurately being represented by whoever we elect um, in the Congress and the kind of policies uh, they adopt. Right, right. So is the system getting fairer? The other article in the paper today was about the Supreme Court questioning both sides on a couple of gerrymandering cases. And, and one, of the, uh, one of the paragraphs in the article is about Justice Roberts, who may or may not be a swing vote on this. He might not be the swing vote because he's already weighed in. He, and he said, for a different case, no matter how concerned we may be about partisanship and redistricting, this court has no power to gerrymander the Constitution. 
And he was saying that only elected lawmakers may decide on election districts. So here we have the Supreme Court maybe about to undermine some of the votes that individuals took in their states and and replace it replace the changes with the gerrymandered districts again. Our Democrats or our people, I don't even say Democrats, our people who are fighting for more fairness in the system, um, you know, going to run up against institutional gridlock or institutional um, uh, opposition. Well, I don't know how uh, Justice Roberts is going to come down on the case, but that certainly is uh, a discouraging quote if you were hoping hoping, uh, that Justice Roberts would be the swing vote that would help uh, move the Supreme Court to a declaration that partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional. But two things need to be stated. There are 26 states that have popular referendums, Washington state being one of them, in which the people can uh, initiate referendums and can do reforms. And there is a Supreme Court decision on record, a 5-4 decision authored by Judge Gin- Justice Ginsburg uh, about five years ago that said if the people pass a referendum, they're acting as the legislative authority for the state and it's constitutional under the U.S. Constitution for them to fix gerrymander reform. So in those 26 states, um, that can happen. Uh, And the Supreme Court, I don't think, is going to take that away. I don't think there's anything in what Justice Roberts said that said that. Then in other states, and you've had it just recently in Pennsylvania, and it could be on the way to happening in North Carolina as well, uh, you have state lawsuits brought under the state constitutions, and you had the state Supreme Court of Pennsylvania in 2018 say the partisan gerrymander of, of uh, Pennsylvania done by the Republican majority in 2011 was unconstitutional under the state constitution. The state Republican leadership then went to the Supreme Court of the United States and said, overrule these guys. This is unconstitutional on the American Constitution, and twice the Supreme Court, with Justice Alito writing the decision, said no. This is up to your state Supreme Court. Uh, there have been other rulings by state Supreme Courts in Missouri and Arkansas, uh, and there may be more to come. So it may have to go that way. I mean, I have to admit, I find it astonishing that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, would not make a decision ultimately that the partisan stacking of the deck uh, is is unconstitutional because the issue here is whether or not the, the value of the votes, the First Amendment rights of voters, whether they're Republicans in Maryland or Democrats in North Carolina or Republicans in Illinois or Democrats in Texas, what have you, can be diluted or reduced in their value, which is what happens when you have gerrymandering. Uh, if you live in a district uh, in, in Texas that's been gerrymandered Republican by the Republican uh, legislature, it is rational not to vote. I mean, for the Supreme Court to sanction that, to me, it would be astonishing. But it may happen. But that still doesn't stop the reform movement uh, in other areas, and you have already 15 states, including Washington State, that have moved to some kind of bipartisan commission, some kind of independent commission, uh, or some kind of independent mechanism, a nonpartisan staff, doing the drawing of district lines uh, under, uh, under both the U.S. Constitution and the state constitution, and that's been upheld. And much of that has happened in the last decade 
So there, there's no question there's a groundswell from below. And it may ultimately lead to a, a constitutional amendment on this issue. We'll have to see. But I think the momentum behind here, I think the people understanding that elections are rigged. I mean, it's really interesting that if you look at the 2016 election, that you had Bernie Sanders on, on the Democratic Party on the, on the left and Donald Trump on the right, both of them saying elections are rigged and a, a solid majority of Americans uh, in both wings and plenty in the center as well agreeing with the judgment that elections are rigged. Uh, and now there's an independent movement, a movement among independent voters who are now the most numerous in the country and particularly in the younger generation. More than 50 percent of the people under 35 or under 30 declare themselves as independents. They say a pox on both of your parties. I don't think this thing is going to stand, Steve. I mean, it may take time. Look how long it took uh, you know, for women to get the vote. You know, look how long it took to get civil rights legislation. I mean, they, some of these reforms take a couple of decades uh, before they reach fruition. But there's already enough movement here to expect that it's going to carry on. And look what happened on the issue of gay rights and gay marriage. I mean, in a decade, uh, you had a turnaround politically. You had a turnaround in public attitudes. You had a turnaround in legislation. And eventually you had a turnaround in the Supreme Court decisions. So um, America is a changing place. I don't think it's fixed. You know, Rick, you lived and reported on Russia for a long time. You... Um... You've reported for a long time, and uh, we look at the, the what's happening in other nations and, and, and the threats to democracy around the world and in America. Um, any lessons you draw from the time in the Soviet Union, that, and it was the Soviet Union and Russia, right, uh, and what you see happening in, you know, with voting, to pick one example, today? Well, if we just stick with uh, what's going on abroad, I think the trends are, are really upsetting. Um, I, I don't think there's any question uh, that Putin is a throwback to the czars. I mean, he's an absolutist, uh, and he's not only a throwback to the czars in terms of the way he rules his own country, but he represents in his own mind a great power that's been shoved aside. Russia has been shoved aside by the United States, but also by NATO, by Germany, uh, and treated as a second-class power. He's resentful, very similar to how some of the Russian czars felt, uh, very protective and wants to move out into the area around them, Hungary, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, uh, certainly Ukraine, which uh, he sees much the way as Americans see Canada, not as part of Russia, but as a brotherly country that should always be with us and that should never be against us. And we have to count on that long, safe uh, border that we have with them. They speak the same language, worship in the same civic religion and so forth. So I think I think Putin, Putin is trouble. Uh, and I think Putin coming out of the KGB uh, is used to the KGB's uh, method of fighting. He's obviously... Um, adapted the Russian uh, system to modern cyber warfare. I mean, I mean, uh, he certainly has not been in a position and wouldn't have seen himself in a position uh, to use military force. We've deterred him on that score, despite Donald Trump probably, uh, from, from moving with force into Estonia or Lithuania or Latvia. Uh, or Poland, some of those uh, countries that sit right close to the to the border. But the Ukraine is so close, and the part of the Ukraine that he started he used troops in is a very Russian part of the Ukraine. It used to be almost practically welded into Russia, seizing Crimea. 
he gauged us right, we wouldn't come to war. I mean, I think Putin's a dangerous guy uh, in his own territory, and they found through modern technology, through cyber warfare, through the vulnerabilities of our system, through uh, the inattention and, and lax security on Facebook and our social media, he's taken enormous advantage. I, th I think this is a very difficult uh, situation we're in. As a matter of fact, as a Russian specialist, I think it's really important that, that the Mueller report come out so we can actually see the picture that Mueller put together. We've got pieces of it. You know, we've got uh, we've got Manafort handing polling data to Russians and who have connections with the Kremlin. Um, you know, we've got the meeting of, of Don Jr. with the Russian attorney uh, at Trump Tower in the middle of the campaign. We've got the WikiLeaks talks, uh, you know, with Roger Stone, uh, and the leaks are going to be. So there's there's to me, it's clear there was collusion. There's a difference between collusion and conspiracy. Conspiracy is a legal term. Term, and that's what Mueller was looking at. Uh, and that means the people sort of have to sit down, almost have a contract to agree to break the law together. It has to be very explicit. Uh, it can't be sort of this back-to-back stuff. Trump is saying publicly to the Russians, why don't you steal Hillary's emails? They do it and they release them you know, in a short period of time. That to me is on the face of it, collusion. It's not conspiracy in a legal sense. Uh, that kind of stuff, I think, is, is deeply troubling that, that Putin feels he can play that kind of game, not just in the U.S., but he's done it in Germany. He's done it in, in the Baltic states and so forth. And we still don't know, you know whether or not uh, we have a safe election vote counting system in this country. Electronic systems are vulnerable. Uh, the Russians clearly, from what we've been told by our intelligence services, um, invaded the election systems in 15 or 20 states. There may be some evidence that they fiddle with voter registration in three or four states, North Carolina, Georgia, and a couple of others. Uh, but they didn't do what they they were technically capable of doing, which doesn't mean they won't do it in the future unless we go have a double safe system. That is a paper ballot system as well as an electronic system. You know, so um, voting and how we go forward uh, depends upon how smart we are um, about not just the Russians, but the Chinese, the North Koreans. I mean, lots of people have this capability now. We li we're living in a different world technically than we were before. And, you know, I think we've, as a nation, we felt as though those two seas, the Pacific and the Atlantic, protected us from the kind of threat that other nations had, had faced. Uh, the ICBMs of the Cold War changed that. Uh, then when we got to detente, we fixed that. But now we're back into it. Cyber warfare is just knows no boundaries. Um, so I don't think we can feel as safe there uh, as we felt before. And I think the smart people, the intelligence people, even the intelligence people that Trump himself appointed have told us point blank, the Russians are still doing this. We're not safe. We can't count on the security of our election systems unless we get smart. But are there entrenched American interests who also support those same ideas and want to manipulate the, the ballots in similar ways? Because otherwise, I don't understand why there isn't a hue and cry from these election officials across the country to say, we're moving now to make our systems more impenetrable. Well, I think there has been a move in that direction from states that had the money, from cities that had the money. I mean, I think, you know, if you're talking about California, if you're talking about Ohio, if you're talking about Massachusetts and, and a number of big states, there there have been moves in that direction. The problem is really mostly in states that are not as well off uh, and, and, and also interior. Uh, they're inside the country. They're not as sensitive in some ways. 
uh, you know, feeling as though they're vulnerable to something from abroad. But I think that's a, a partly um, a, a partly the result of, of the of the Russian investigation of the Mueller investigation. There's so much attention has been on that. Uh, that it's been hard uh, to deal with some of the other election issues. Uh, and, and certainly the Congress hasn't dealt with them, and the president hasn't helped. I mean, the, ma- the main problem is the administration, uh, which has the wherewithal, which has the money and the expertise uh, to go help other states, has uh, not taken it very seriously at all. They've done some stuff because Congress has forced them, but they haven't done very much at all. I mean, I think the real problem there is, is the president himself and the people around him. Well, did, did the Obama administration do much better? No, they didn't. But the Obama administration was the administration that was slowly waking up. I mean, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. You're talking about President Obama, but Brennan running the CIA and those guys. I mean, it took them almost until the eve of the election to actually conclude that the Russians were doing what we now have documented in spades. I mean, I, I don't think that was a matter of political reluctance. I think it was a... I think it was a lack of imagination. I think it was a shock that just you they couldn't believe that a foreign power would dare to intrude in such a brazen way into our election system. I, I think that's, that's that's naivete. I think that's innocence. I don't think that was either malevolence or or lack of concern. Hmm. It's just you know not uh, being very smart. You know David Brooks in uh, the New York Times. A lot of his columns of late seem to argue that that at the foundation of these troubles that we have and the people we've elected and how they treat each other and the way we run these systems is a moral problem, that there's a lack of sort of moral responsibility, culpability, a lack of what we believe is right and wrong. Um, What do you think? Well, you know, I think we were we were touching on that a bit when you asked me the question of why um, people of power, people of wealth um, uh, are so reluctant to see a change. I, I, I would agree. I don't know that I agree with David that that's the source of all of it. But I do believe that the lack of ethics and the lack of morality in business and in politics, and some would say in parts of journalism uh, and lots of other walks of life, certainly sports, uh, God, look at the corruption in sports. Look at the corruption we have now in trying to get into higher education when you've got highly wealthy people who can already afford all kinds of private tutors, uh, all kinds of private advantages to get their kids into the best schools. And even then, they can't resist spending another $100,000 to bribe a coach to get a phony athletic scholarship for a kid uh, as a tiddlywinks champion or water polo champion to get into some college like Yale. I mean, I mean, talk about yes i think i think ethics is a serious problem as a matter of fact i think there are two things that are interesting if you look at the larger issue arnold toynbee the great british historian who wrote this 12 volume history of world civilizations 21 civilizations 6000 years said that there were certain signs that were indicators of a civilization in decline and not likely to last And one of the key things that he fingered was whether or not the elite of the country, he called them the cultural elite, and by that he didn't mean the artists and the poets and the movie makers and the actors. He meant the people who were leaders of the culture, who set the standards, who devised the institutions, the people like our founding fathers, the Washingtons, the Jeffersons, the Adams, the Ben Franklins, and so on and so forth, James Madison. Um, He said when the cultural elite of a civilization 
becomes more concerned with the expansion of its own wealth and power as opposed to the the growth and the nurturing of the civilization. That civilization is on the road to decline. And he also suggested that when you have a breakdown of ethics, when people within a civilization stop caring about being as fair to others, whether they're business competitors or business suppliers or business employees or sports competitors or political competitors and so forth, when there isn't ethical restraint, the fabric of the civilization begins to tear, uh, begins to crumble. And I, I think it makes it much harder to do what needs to be done in America today, in my opinion, which is to repair our democracy. Uh, it makes it much harder when the leadership people in one walk of life and another is more focused on feathering its own nest and increasing its own wealth and power rather than making the system better. And frankly, Steve, that's one of the things that I gain heart, courage, and hope from what people at the grassroots are doing. I, I get hope from people like Cindy Black and, and, and Linda Bach and the others who came together and fixed democracy first in the state of Washington. I gain hope from people in Common Cause you know, and the League of Women Voters who in Florida put together fair districts and, and managed to get an unbelievable majority of Florida voters to pass gerrymander reform. I, I'm impressed by the Coalition for Civic Action in Connecticut that 50 groups that got together and put the heat on both Republicans and and Democrats in state government to pass a reform that, that has public funding of campaigns that now has actually transformed the political culture in the state of Connecticut. Eighty percent of the people in the legislature get their campaigns funded by public funds once they qualify by raising a few bucks themselves. Um, I mean, it's, it's um, what's happening is there is this this um, outrage, this anger uh, at the grassroots, and there is this sense that we counted on the politicians and our elected officials to do this for us, but they're not doing it. We have to do it ourselves. So if there is any hope um, that we don't go into decline as a civilization or aren't in an irreversible decline as a civilization, and that's a big statement to make, but I think those are the, those are the risks. I think we're in that perilous situation. If there's any hope that we're going to stop that, it's going to come from below. It's not going to come from above. And that doesn't mean there aren't rich people and powerful people who are good and who are working uh, for the good of the whole. Uh, you know, I, I think you can point, point to some. Uh, but the terrible thing is they're a small minority uh, you know, in, in, the, in the elite class. The difficulty is uh, the elite corporations are returning more than 90% of their profits to their shareholders, including themselves, the CEO and the, and the executives themselves, rather than reinvesting in new products, in R&D, in new plants, in retraining their, equip, uh, their, their workers, in raising worker pay and, and a better balance, which used to be the case. I mean, in my book, Who Stole the American Dream, I talk about a period of American capitalism 
when Charlie Wilson, who was CEO of General Motors, and, and Reg Jones at General Electric, and other people like him, Frank Abrams at Exxon, and so forth, they believed their job was to balance the economic interests of all the stakeholders in the corporation, to make it turn out fair. They, as bosses, made 30 or 40 times as much as their assembly line workers, their average workers. Today, it's it's 360 times. Tim Cook at, at, at Apple makes over 4,000 times as much as the average Apple worker in America. And guess what the average Apple worker in America is? He's the kid or the young woman in the store that helps you figure out how to fix your computer and how to handle the software, and they all have college educations. So here's this guy making you know, 4,000, 4, maybe 4,800 times, I can't remember the exact number, uh, of what these kids are making. It, that, you know, If you went back 30 or 40 years in America, that was unethical. And that's one of the problems we have. It's unethical. We have that kind of inequality. The inequality in economics goes into inequality in spending in the political system. Other people capture the political system to make sure that the kind of laws are written to protect their economic inequality. That's why people are revolting from below. I find that encouraging. And, and I think it's a great story. And I also think it's an undercovered story. I'm utterly amazed that uh, my colleagues uh, in the Washington press corps uh, aren't covering it more. But then I'm not amazed because they're mesmerized by Washington. You've got to get out of Washington uh, and you've got to cover the country if you're going to find out what's happening in the country. And I'm lucky. I was a foreign correspondent for the New York Times. And if I was going to cover the Soviet Union, I couldn't sit in Moscow. I had to cover that whole – I had to find out what's going on in Siberia. I had to find out what's going on in Soviet Georgia or, or Armenia, or I had to find out what's going on in the Baltic states. I had to get out. Um, you know, when I was in the Middle East, I had to travel eight or ten countries. I had to get around. I couldn't just sit in Cairo uh, in one place. And I think part of the difficulty is that, that we're now dominated by a media that sits in Washington or a bit of it in New York and a tiny bit of it in Los Angeles and doesn't have much live experience outside – the verbal fights in Washington. I mean, actually, most of what you cover in Washington is a war of words. It's not much reality. The reality is out in, I don't know, Detroit or, uh, or, or uh, you know, in Texas or, or in the textile industry or in the software industry. I mean, it's all over the country. But yet it seems like Americans, many Americans, are seduced by that you know, back and forth. And, and education is a big part of it. And media education is a big part of it. I don't, uh, I guess, I, I don't know. I, I'm younger than you and I get filled with despair. I want to know what you, at, you know, you're 20 years older than me, if not more. You, what, is outrage keep you going? Is hope keeping you going? Or is it just that you're a peripatetic reporter who's always asking questions? Well, no, I, I but but it's a combination of what you said. I guess part of it is I'm a congenital optimist, but I think the real thing is that I'm a reporter. And if you're a reporter, it means you go look, you go listen. We've become a media culture that talks. We love to hear ourselves, and, and it's terrible for me to be saying that because you're interviewing me and I'm here talking. You know, so it's pretty hypocritical on my part, but I'm trying to share with you what I'm seeing in my reporting. And I think that that seeing people and, and, and seeing what they do uh, in a variety of places can be greatly encouraging. If I didn't see the reaction, if I didn't see the rebellions that I'm seeing in Ohio, for crying out loud, in Utah, in Missouri, in Florida, in North Carolina, 
in Ohio, if I didn't see those rebellions occurring there, if I didn't see people outraged there to the point where they're taking action that they haven't taken before in New Mexico and Arizona, listen to the states I'm mentioning. If I didn't see that, yeah, I probably would have the despair you're talking about. But I do think the the going and asking questions, the going and seeing, uh, the listening, listening is terribly important. We don't do a lot of listening in America today. We do a lot of talking. Don't do a lot of listening. In the media, we do an enormous amount of talking. You know, and, and cable has multiplied that. I mean, how, how does cable work economically? Cable works by gathering a bunch of people in the studio and letting them talk. It costs money to send somebody into the field. It costs money to do the investigative reporting that's being done by the New York Times and the Washington Post today. The rest of the media are feeding off them. If, if you look at MSNBC or CNN, uh, to some degree even Fox, uh, on many a day, they're dependent on reporting that's being done by people who are actually out discovering something. But most of the media time, particularly on air, particularly on television, is talk about what others have discovered. It's not going on and finding out something new. Um, so I think I find that refreshing uh, just for me. It energizes me as a person. But I also find out what I learn encouraging. All right, Rick Smith, the winning back our democracy. You can see it on YouTube. Look for it on some of those uh, very media outlets <laughs> Rick was just talking about. I appreciate but YouTube. They've got it. You, Steve, they got to go to the channel called the people versus the politicians, the people versus VS, the politicians, and then look for that documentary. There are 25 uh, videos up there. So just look for the one called winning back our democracy. But I hope people will do that. You won't believe what you see. And when you see it, you say, Jesus, if they can do that, why can't I do it? In fact, there's a wonderful line from a guy in Florida, a, a Latino leader after they pass gerrymander reform. And he says, point blank to the camera, if we can do it in Florida, you can do it in your state. And that's yeah. my attitude. Yeah. All right, sir. I appreciate it. You know, um, because I never got to be a foreign correspondent like you, but I believe in all that stuff. I've been uh, lately, I've been um, getting to uh, travel with students through the University of Washington and now through Bellevue College and we went to the South five or six times with students and, and also older people. It was a mixed cohort to uh, study civil rights and go to meet some of the civil rights heroes that are still alive. Yeah. It was yeah. an amazing experience. And uh, last year and this year, I also am doing it. We're going to Ireland, going to the border there and uh, wow. talking about civil rights in Ireland and doing the whole history of Ireland. But then the students have to do stories about that, you know, compare and contrast civil rights, radio stories. Let me just ask rights. you. Let me just ask you back the question you asked me. Do you find simply the experience of doing that putting you in a different frame of mind than when you sit in Seattle? Oh, yes, a hundred, and that's why I wanted to do it. Yes, uh, and and just traveling, of course, in and of itself. But yes, to be interacting, going, working, having to do the work is part of what I like so much. Yeah, about I mean, it. because you're doing something more than just traveling. You're digging into somebody else's life, somebody else's reality. You're, right. le you're learning, you're learning something new, or or being willing to unlearn something that you took for granted. Right. I think that I think that's important. You know, I I, have, I never I didn't realize it at the time. 
uh, or I didn't think about it at the time the way I just mentioned it to you. But it was great for me to be a foreign correspondent in between my working in Washington because of the experience that I just mentioned, that you just cannot cover a foreign country by sitting in its capital, particularly a big one. I mean, you might be able to do it in Luxembourg, but but uh, particularly a big one. And, and so that just that just conditioned me to want to get moving and not to be content. And I think we've got to, frankly, I, I call it covering the fire engine. I mean, the easiest way to cover local news is, is to have a police radio, listen to the radio and chase the fire engine and get some dramatic pictures of flame and talk about the threat to, to people's lives. You know, but you haven't learned a damn thing. You've learned absolutely nothing about the way your city operates and whatnot. If you start to investigate why there was a fire and was there, are the fire codes all right and you know that kind of stuff, then maybe you'll learn some. But that's the kind of journalism we got going on with politics today. Basically, I mean, when you're covering Trump's tweets, what are you learning? Yeah. What are we learning? We, we're not even learning about him. He, his tweets are highly repetitive. Um, they oftentimes don't pan out into any kind of policy reality. And yet they're being treated as as um, uh, I don't know as, as important as the passage of a law, right? And now, in the you meantime, know, when, he, when he decides to recognize with a tweet, when he decides to recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, that is a policy declaration, and that deserves coverage. But most of the tweets that, if you look at the tweet storms he's had, I mean, they're usually rants against somebody who's either threatened him or pissed him off. To me, my wife asked me about him. I said. I want to know what triggered him, because every time Trump has a really serious tweet storm, he's insecure. He's worried about somebody. Somebody's gotten perilously close to him, and he's scared. And what he does is he lashes back. I want to know what triggered that. That's that's the story. That's what's that's what's worth covering. But, well, but that takes work. Yeah, but also in the meantime, there are policies galore that that the media can be covering and that the Democrats could talk about that are real policy changes in the Trump, from the Trump administration that are just moving through, especially environmental ones and land preservation ones that are that are not covered. All right, thank you for talking I, to me. I again. enjoyed enjoyed talking to you. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. You can find Hedrick Smith's documentary, Winning Back Our Democracy, on YouTube. Search for The People versus the Politicians, Winning Back Our Democracy. Smith talks about the issues for Town Hall 730, Monday, April 8th, at the Summit on Pike. You can hear an excerpt from this interview with Hedrick Smith at the podcast I put out with Ginny Palmer for Town Hall in the moment. Find it, as you found this podcast, wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to At Length. I appreciate your interest. We're going to hear from Mary Norris next time. Mary Norris, New Yorker copy editor, wrote the book Between You and Me, an award-winning and award-nominated humor book. Her new book is called Greek to Me. She takes us to the country and deep into the language. It's a fun book and a fun interview. Join me. Thanks for listening.